0: The only thing necessary for evil to prevail is that good men and women do nothing. I am simply a mouthpiece for good men and women around the world who want to make a difference. The engagement and the involvement of ordinary people is what is going to change our criminal justice system. Many have tried and failed. But the only difference between them and me is I'm bringing an army with me. This is Truth and Justice. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Truth and Justice. This is your Friday follow up episode, and I'm your host, Bob Ruff. And I'm your co host, Mike Bussing. Well, it's been a long two weeks, but we are finally back from our vacation. And as always, we want to thank you for giving us the opportunity to take a week off. I know Mike did some stuff around the house here in town. Yeah, I didn't go out of town, but I definitely hit the beach and spent some downtime
1: relaxing. It was a good vacation. You and Skip. Yeah, me and the new dog.
0: Yep. And uh, I was able to take my family to Kentucky and to Tennessee, and we just had a really good time. So, again, thank you for giving us the opportunity to take the week off. Uh, A lot has happened in the last week. For any of you that follow along on social media, you know that we've had some issues with iTunes, and it revolves around our previous music guy, Mr. Johnny Rose. Yeah, that's brought up a lot of questions. I'd like to talk a little bit about that today, too. Yeah, so we'll get into that, and that's something I've kind of avoided talking about since October when we stopped using Johnny's music. But it's kind of been brought to the forefront now, and now I think we owe everyone a a real explanation on that. Prior to us leaving, we dropped the Asian McLean interview, which I don't think we had a whole lot of questions about that one. No, there
1: weren't too many questions. Uh, I had a few for you in the outlines, so maybe oh. we could hit those, too.
0: Sure, yeah, And uh, but everybody seemed to really enjoy that interview. We got a lot of great positive feedback about that. So we'll start off, I guess, talking about the music situation. Okay, that's fine. Now, for the next few minutes, we're going to talk about this whole music situation, and the reason that I haven't brought it up prior to this is because I just don't want to bring in any business-type drama into the podcast. But uh, I have had a lot of people over the last several months asking what was going on and wanting an explanation, and I've avoided the topic. But since this week we were actually removed from iTunes, which is an issue we're still working on today, which is Wednesday, it's something that absolutely at this point does need to be addressed, so I'll explain it in detail. But with that being said... I know there are some of you that have no interest in any of this discussion. So in order to try to do this in a way that we can get the information out there for those who want it, but give people the opportunity that don't want to listen to it, a way to get past it, we are I don't know how long it's going to be, but we're going to talk about this music situation. And then, Mike, what we'll do is, when we're done with this discussion, put in about 30 seconds of bump music, some of Shane's music in there, so that listeners, if you just right now want to hit the 15-second forward skip button on your podcast app, you can bump forward until you hear some music, and then we'll get back into the normal case stuff after that. Okay, so what happened? Why did we stop using Johnny's music to begin with, Bob? Right, so this is a question that has come up ever since October when we switched from Johnny Rose to Shane Yoder with PutThemInASong.com. And the reason that we don't use Johnny's music anymore, and again, I tried to avoid all of this drama, is I found an ethical dilemma with continuing to work with Johnny Rose. So, the beginning of my relationship with Johnny Rose was after episode one of Truth and Justice, then Serial Dynasty. uh, Johnny sent me an email soliciting me and asking if I wanted to use his music on the show. And I'm just going to, it's a short email, so I'm just going to go ahead and read to you what that email stated. It says, Hi, Bob. My name is Johnny Rose. I'm a songwriter and composer based in Los Angeles. I just listened to your podcast for the first time, and it's really great. Congrats. You mentioned that you'd like to have music as part of the podcast, so I thought I'd submit some original music for you to consider using as cues or theme music during the show. You can use it for free if you like. I just ask that you credit me, Johnny Rose, and or my company, Slightly Subversive Music, at some point during the show. All of this music is 100% composed, recorded, and owned by me. I'm attaching an instrumental called Milan that has a few different sections that could be broken up as different cues, and also a solo violin piece that could be cool to use, too. Also below is a download link folder with additional chamber pieces of mine that could fit with the subject matter. If interested, let me know. Thanks. Best, Johnny. So as you can see clearly, our relationship began with Johnny soliciting me, asking me to use his music, offering it for free, claiming 100% ownership of the music, and all he asked in exchange for that was for me to credit him and his company, which, as you all know, for those of you that have listened since the beginning, I did that in every episode. So, as the story goes, as time goes on, the show gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And mind you, the show was still costing me a lot of money. I wasn't making any money for a long time, for almost a year into the show. You remember, back then, I was still working as the fire chief, and I was doing the podcast on the weekends and evenings, just working out here still in my shed. So, about that time, when the show started to get bigger, and sponsorships started coming in, but I wasn't being paid by anybody yet, I offered to Johnny to create the Truth and Justice soundtrack and told him that I would advertise for it so he could make some money. And as I mentioned, every single time I talked about it on the show, all of the sales of the soundtrack went directly to Johnny. I didn't take one single dime of that. I didn't want it. And that was my idea that I did to try to help pay him back for letting us use his music. So up to that point, all things were good. And I will acknowledge that at that point, Johnny said, maybe at some point, if the show starts making a lot of money, maybe we could talk about some kind of a licensing fee which I was fine with. Well, a few months later go by. We're picking up new cases. I'm getting swamped, and that's about the time that I hired Mike. Well, when Johnny heard on the show that I hired Mike, he sent me an email, and that was in October, telling me that up till now, the music was given to us for free, but since we're making enough money to hire a full-time employee, we need to talk about licensing fees. And he said that he wanted $350 a month to continue using his music. Now, what I want to point out first here before I move on with this story is that this was never about the money. It wasn't the issue of the $350 a month. Now, at that particular time, that was a lot of money, and I didn't know what the reasonable amount was or industry standard was to pay for the licensing of what were eight tracks of his that I was using. So I emailed him back and told him I would have to think about it and look at the budget, and we can talk later on after I have a couple of days to kind of absorb that. Well, and that turned into Johnny emailing me several times over and over again. First, that he was willing to negotiate the price, but then, no, he wasn't willing to negotiate the price. And followed that up with, if I didn't agree to pay him, then he would issue takedown notices and take down the whole podcast. And he also told me that it was his publisher, Warner Chappell, that was forcing him to now take licensing fees for the music. Now, for me, the big trigger here that made me think that maybe Johnny is not the person that we want to continue working with on the show was the fact that he was willing to take down the podcast, which means take down all of the support for Anand Syed, Kenny Snow, Edward Aids at that time, Carrie Max Cook. He was willing to remove all the support. Now, mind you, I'm not making, and at that time, was not making any money off of those old episodes. So it doesn't have any effect on me personally if the episodes are removed. The only people hurt by that would be Anon, Kenny, Ed, and Carrie Max Cook. So I told him in an email, I'm not sure I want to continue working with you. We need to talk about this. And by the way, since now you've told me that the music is actually owned by Warner Chappell, I need to have these negotiations with Warner Chappell and not with you. And that was on the advice of my attorney. So long story short, eventually I get on the phone with Warner Chappell. And this is where things completely went downhill. The conversation last October that I had with someone from Warner Chappell was to discuss negotiations as to what the cost would be going forward to continue to use Johnny's music, even though I had some reservations about continuing forward after his threats of taking the show down. Johnny's music had kind of become something everyone was used to on the podcast. You know it wasn't that necessarily his music was the perfect fit for the show, but it's what they had always heard with the show since the very beginning, so if I could continue working with him, I wanted to so I go into a good faith negotiations with Warner Chapel. And during the course of those discussions, which I'm not going to get into too much about my dealings with Warner Chapel, all I'll tell you is we had, throughout the course of the last several months, what could be considered normal business communication negotiations. They just went how they would normally go, and they ended with Warner saying that they are not going to pursue the matter any further. But going back to the beginning, I was telling them that when I looked up what it costs to license a single track, that fee is typically a one-time fee and $100 or less. And I learned that because in the interim, when we were trying to figure out what to do with the music, I was licensing music online and buying licenses for 50 to $75. So an ongoing fee of over $5,000 a year to use these eight tracks just didn't seem reasonable. But in any case, as we started to discuss the matter, I was told, don't worry about past use. Let's look at going forward. And I asked the gentleman if he knew the situation between me and Johnny. And he said, oh, yes, he sent me a Word document with all of your emails in it. From beginning to end. So I have the whole history right here. And he started reading to me the emails that Johnny had sent to him. And Johnny had edited and doctored the emails to completely change the context of what they said. So it was at that point that I said, moving forward, I am not going to work with this man. The show is called Truth and Justice. We are all about truth and justice. And I'm not going to work with a man that, number one, will threaten to remove the support for the people that we're working for. And number two... Is willing to lie and falsify documents to do so. So, that back in October is why we stopped using Johnny Rose's music. And I never explained it because I didn't want to air out all this dirty laundry, but that was the reason why we stopped using Johnny Rose. So, after that, moving forward, I was working with Warner Chappell and we were negotiating a fee for the past use of music. And my position at all times with Warner Chappell and my attorney's position was that I don't owe Johnny Rose anything because he gave me express written permission to use the music for free. In exchange, by the way, for advertising, which unlike the number that they had pulled for their licensing fees going forward, the advertising fees actually have a monetary value that's based in reality based on an industry standard. And the amount of advertising that I had provided for Johnny Rose during the course of this 18 months that we worked together has a fair market value of well over $100,000. So I certainly didn't feel like Johnny was cheated in any way, shape, or form. Plus, let's not forget the fact that I had let him use my name, likeness, and logo in order to sell albums for the Truth and Justice soundtrack, which he was doing. At the end of the day, after several months had gone by and I was working with Warner Chapel, we've had a lot of new expenses come up on the show. We've got Ed's DNA testing that's going out. We've got Jesse Eldridge's DNA testing that's going out. Uh, We've got open records requests for some new cases we're looking at. There's a lot of money that we need to spend as a company to help the people that we're working for right now. And I didn't feel it right or ethical to send that money to Johnny Rose when none of it was owed to him. So I refused to pay anything for the back use of these episodes. And the best analogy that I can give you for the way I feel the way this whole situation went down would be if I walked up to you and said, Hey, you look hungry. Let me give you this homemade brownie. It's my brownie. I want you to taste it. I think you'll really like it. And you eat the brownie and you swallow the brownie and the brownie's gone. And then I come back to you a week later and say, Oh, by the way... That wasn't my brownie, that was my mom's brownie, and she wants $1,000 for that brownie. And it's too late to uneat the brownie. The brownie's gone, and now they're asking for an exorbitant amount of money that has no basis in reality. And that's basically what happened with me and Johnny Rose. So, I told you all that to tell you this, what's going on right now, is while I was dealing with Warner Chappell, because they're the only people I'm supposed to deal with, according to Johnny, Johnny Rose, a few weeks ago, sent an email to Apple telling them that I violated a copyright and that I used his music without permission on the podcast. So the first time this happened, Apple sent me an email telling me that this claim was made. I responded by sending them all of the supporting documentation, including the very first email Johnny sent me, telling me I could use the music for free, all the way till the end, the very last email, where he acknowledges you've been using it now for free as agreed upon. But moving forward, we're going to have to look at a licensing fee And I showed them how from that date moving forward, I never used the music again. Apple looked into it, sent me an email back, and said, we will not be removing the podcast. The claim is baseless. So when I went on vacation last week, I thought the problem was done and over with. Well, apparently, while I was on vacation, Johnny submitted the claim again. This time, whoever handled it at Apple did not contact me, did not send me an email, and did not investigate. They just pulled the podcast. I'm guessing maybe had something to do with the fact that there's been two copyright claims against the podcast within a matter of weeks, even though they were both from the same person. And again, I want to point out to you the part that is so frustrating to me, the reason I'm actually telling you all what this man is actually made of and what he does is because if he thought there was an actual claim against the copyright, Johnny could easily sue me for that back money. He could force me to pay him what is owed to him. But instead of doing that, He's going after the support for the people that we're working for. And that's the part that pisses me off. And that's the reason why I stopped working with them over six months ago. So, in the meantime, what's happening is I had to email Apple and told them, hey, look, this has already been dealt with. I gave them the previous case number. The people at Apple are now looking into it. As of now, again, this is Wednesday. So, by the time this episode drops on Friday, I don't know what the situation is going to be at that point. So the, the feed is still working. The podcast is still there. You can go to Boom and listen to the podcast or a lot of other podcast apps, including the Boom app. And I believe if you're already subscribed to Truth and Justice on the Apple iTunes podcast app that it's still there. It's just new subscribers can't find it. But as of right now, the claim is being reinvestigated by the Apple team. I haven't heard back from them. Of course, then it went into a weekend and then Fourth of July and all this holiday stuff. But the last thing that I sent into Apple, which I think very clearly makes the case, is a screenshot of the iTunes store where Johnny Rose still, as of Friday, was selling the Truth and Justice soundtrack by Johnny Rose on iTunes with a song titled The Truth and Justice Theme Song that he's profiting from while simultaneously telling Apple that I didn't have permission to use his music on the podcast. And when I sent that into Apple, I got a response that said, we will most certainly consider this when investigating your accuser. But Apple's a huge company, just coming off a holiday weekend. So again, I don't know what's going to happen from here. But that is your now going on 15 minutes explanation as to what happened with Johnny Rose, what's happened with the iTunes feed. And no matter what Johnny has to say, this has been and never was about the money. It's about working with people and having people be a part of this army who have the same moral character and a heart for what we're doing. Like our new music guy, the man that I'm happy to call a friend at this point, now that I've gotten to know him, Shane Yoder with PutThemInASong.com, has a true heart for what we are doing here. And as a matter of fact, he's got a new project coming out very soon that he's in the middle of working on. I've had some previews to it, and it's just incredible. And just to give you an idea of Shane Yoder and who he is, when I said we should get this project out on iTunes so you can make some money from it, he said that he doesn't want any money from it, that the reason he's doing it is he wants to raise money for Jesse and Ed and Kenny's families as they go forward with this whole tragedy that they're dealing with right now. So that's the kind of man that I want to work with. So I think now, Mike, maybe a little bit of Shane Yoder's music as a palate cleanser, and then we'll move into the rest of the episode. <laughs> you got it. And real quick before I do that, so I guess at the end of the day, uh, as far as what to do about this iTunes thing, one way or another, we'll be on iTunes, whether we get to continue using the feed we have or if we have to start all over. And that's the big issue is we have two and a half years of ratings and reviews and rankings. You know, We've maintained ourselves as a top 100 podcast amongst millions for over two years now, which which I'm really proud of. And that's a direct result of all of your support. Well, if we have to change feeds, we'll just put everything on there with a new feed without those old episodes. is probably what we'll end up having to do if this doesn't get corrected. And if we do that, we're going to start with zero subscribers, zero reviews, zero ratings, like we're a brand new podcast. But it will be there. So what I want everyone to know is this problem is easily solved. From now on, our vacation is over every Friday and every Sunday at 6 a.m. Eastern Time. There'll be a new episode of Truth and Justice. If at one of those times you look and there's no episode there, just search the Truth and Justice podcast on iTunes. You'll find us. You'll probably find our new feed. Subscribe there. We'll just continue on business as usual. We're not stopping. So if you don't see our episode, just look for it and you'll easily find it. And now I think we're ready for our palate cleanser.
1: All right. All right. Since we had two weeks off, and with the fact that our last episode was an interview, there weren't a whole lot of listener questions. But I have a few things here I want to go over with you in regards to the Asia interview. Okay, go ahead. As everybody knows, on our last episode, you interviewed Asia McLean Chapman, known for her involvement in the Adnan Sayed case. We definitely appreciated having her on the show, and although we haven't touched on Adnan's case in a while, it was good to revisit since so many listeners are eager to know more about the case. In the interview, Asia said she felt guilty for not fighting harder for Adnan, saying in 2010 she took the alibi information she had to Yurik, but not further. Then she said after hearing Serial, she was able to see the bigger picture and her significance to the case, which is exactly what we had happened with Shauna when she heard Truth and Justice, right? Right, exactly. This says a lot about podcasts like Truth and Justice that work very hard at getting the truth out there for everyone to hear when there might be other forces at work or people trying to hide other important information. What do you think about all this, Bob, the concept of podcasts and what they can do for cases
0: like this? I think it's a new medium that is just it's incredible and not just us. I mean, Undisclosed has been doing this and podcasts are popping up all over the place that are accomplishing the same thing. You know, it's made for the business side of all of us. You know, there's all this, quote, competition now. But people have asked me why I always promote these other podcasts is because of what they're doing, like Up and Vanished, working on the Tara Grinstead case in Georgia. Damn it, Payne's taking our listeners, you know, <laughs> but <laughs> yeah. but he's doing good work over there. And then you have the "Someone Knows Something" podcast and breakdown, and there's just all these different shows that are out there now where people are just getting involved. It's just amazing. It's a it's a phenomenon that has never happened before. And I just, uh, as you know, we're still keeping the name top secret right now. But I was just talking to someone uh, involved in a wrongful conviction case that we're probably going to be covering in the near future. And it's a case that has had all kinds of scrutiny put on it. But one thing that's never happened with this case is this grassroots crowdsourced approach that we get in these podcasts. Yeah. There's always, and I say this all the time, and I'm always quoting the podcast, Someone Knows Something. uh, And I don't mean to be unplugging their podcast. But but that's when I, someone does know something. It's almost impossible for a murder to occur or one of these brutal crimes to occur and someone doesn't know what happened besides the person that actually committed the crime. Like in this case, in in Kiao's case, I am pretty darn certain there's a group of at least about ten guys and gals that know what happened, and only two, three, or four of them I think were involved. But the rest of them all know, and then those people talk, and they tell someone, and they tell someone, just like we had with Sylvia, when the other, you know, the undocumented immigrants knew what happened, but they never spoke. But but that's never going to be found out through a traditional method of investigation. But when we come into it, not just us, any of these other shows uh, that do what we're doing and just ask listeners on a real level and say, hey, ask around. You're from the area. You might know the person that knows someone who knows someone that knows who did this. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's and it's having a hell of an impact. And then as far as like Shauna and Asia are concerned, I mean, it's amazing the parallels. And I, I've said this before that as we research wrongful convictions. There's a pattern. There's always a pattern. You should easily be able to identify what went wrong. And then we see these weird patterns like with Asia. She had no idea what was going on. And I think that that's something that uh, through our show and these other shows that is coming to light now. It's something that people don't realize is that no one actually knows what the hell happened in a trial. Right. You know, it's, it's like so anyone that was on a witness list. Doesn't know what happened in the trial because they weren't in there because they're typically with the rule of witnesses in Michigan they call it sequestering the witnesses, uh. But in other states it's called the just a rule of witnesses where they can't be in the courtroom. And then you know like Asia doesn't go to the trial. She didn't really wasn't really involved all that much. She just knew that she saw him that day. But what Asia didn't know was that the time when she saw him that day was the exact time that they were claiming that he committed the murder. Uh, and so what the podcast does ours and others again by breaking down and reading uh, trial transcripts and and putting out the case documents. Not only is it intriguing and interesting for our listeners who are helping to engage and try to make a difference, but it's reaching people that were involved in the case that had no idea what happened. And and for me, that's been a big eye-opener, and and I don't know if it has for you, too. Oh,
1: absolutely. Yeah,
0: you just assume, like in this case, I always assumed that Shauna Couples knew exactly what happened. You know, I I thought she knew how Jesse got convicted. And and you would assume that Asia McClain knew how Anand Syed got convicted, but the fact of the matter is neither one of them had a clue. Yeah, you know because you know the, the prosecutors don't put out in the press usually. Hey, here's the exact time that we think in and manner in which the, the the crime occurred. The the defense doesn't even know what their narrative is until they get into the courtroom, and and you know at the end of the day there's going to be a little newspaper blurb that says, you know, Syed convicted, Eldridge convicted, and they're not going to get into the, you know, the two weeks of trial that went there. So, sure. yeah, I think that this grassroots podcast, crowdsource investigation thing, it's new, it's powerful. I th- I think it's ex- I think the word best word I could use to describe it is that it is powerful. And it's got some I'm I can tell you firsthand. There are, you know, some former cops and former prosecutors out there that are really not liking it too much um, because it's definitely dragging up some skeletons out of closets for sure. Absolutely.
1: Yeah. And I want to personally say that I really admire and I'm sure a lot of listeners really admire the courage that these women have to be able to stand up and do the right thing.
0: Yeah, it's definitely not easy to, I mean, you think about uh, Shauna, for example, Well, and Asia too. Asia's was a little different because, you know, she just, she wrote, she took a proactive step and wrote a letter and it was just a non's attorney that messed it up and never contacted her. But even for Shauna, the, the guilt that she said she was feeling, which is undeserved, I think, and so does Jesse and so does everybody else involved. But for her in the fact that by her coming forward now, she is having to kind of face the fact, that she didn't come forward before.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, and even though we all know that she didn't really know what was going on exactly. But the fact that she didn't come forward before is is it, it's, it's no easy task. So, you know, I, I agree with your sentiments exactly that I, it's just awe inspiring that, that both Asia and Shauna and, and Tammy also, who was on the show about a month ago uh, to come forward. And I mean, think about Tammy. Tammy is, you know, does not have a good relationship with Jesse. You know, they, they, their relationship didn't end well, but she said, right is right. And I'm going to stand up and I'm going to tell the truth. Yeah. Um. So, you know, hats off to all of them. OK, and one last thing here. Uh, A lot of people were wondering
1: why this episode was categorized under season three as opposed to season one. You want to go over that?
0: Yeah, I mean, it's nothing too complicated. It's I had a few people ask me that on Twitter and through emails and stuff, too. Uh, it's just simply because we're in season three and I messed around with that numbering and tried to, you know, we draw something from season one to change the numbers up. But the the, the thing was, my conversation with Asia came up because of the season three case because of Shauna Couples. So our, our kind of an initial plan was a talk about Shauna's situation because Asia listened to the episode and was familiar with Shauna's situation. So really, the context was about season three, but we ended up discussing a lot more. Uh, about season one about the non ed case and i don't know just for clarity's sake i decided to just leave it uh, in the 300 series i i i don't think people are scanning our episodes every week looking for 100 i think when when everyone knows that asia's on the show they're gonna go check it out and listen to it anybody interested in the case all right i think that's a good place to stop why don't we
1: take a break here from our sponsor and get on with the show Alright, I was digging through some social media earlier and came up on a thread on the fan page started by longtime listener Kristen Peterson. Here, listeners had a discussion on theories about the case, and she pointed out that this was simply a discussion where listeners' inputs couldn't be judged negatively, which is the perfect mindset to have for a discussion over truth and justice. But I wanted to read a few of these theories to you and get your feedback. Kristen's post offered up a female attacker, maybe someone who was interested in her husband Kenneth. Listener Michelle chimed in, saying a woman on the small side could explain the difficulty in controlling Keow in the crime scene, which makes sense. Adding to that, listener Matt suggested the neighborhood woman. We've heard little about who Keow would find on her property when returning home from work. What are your thoughts on a female attacker, Bob?
0: I mean, I certainly wouldn't rule anything out. I don't think we're in a place where we can rule anyone or anything out at this point. I would say that, in my opinion, right now, the idea of a female attacker just seems unlikely, and that's for a couple of reasons. One, uh, the victimology doesn't suggest any kind of motive for a female attacker. Uh, as far as we know, and that's the problem, is we don't know a lot of things, but we don't know of any issues in the relationship between Kiao and Kenneth. We don't know about any you know affairs or anyone crushing on Kenneth or anything like that. Uh also we have the simple fact that in my opinion, and I, I know that this is still up for debate, but in my opinion, there were at least two, if not three different knives used to attack Keow. And so I, I honestly think that any single attacker, in my just opinion right now, and again, that's we're still still early stages here, but I don't believe that we're looking at any single attacker. Based on the crime scene, the directionality, the wounds, the number of wounds, the different sizes of the wounds, I think we're looking at at least two or three people that were committing the crime, and As far as the woman that they were referring to, I don't know anything about her. you know when we we heard about her, it was sounded like to me this was someone that Kiao knew she was a neighbor or a friend, and what Kiao didn't like is that the woman would just go to her house when she wasn't home, so she'd get home from work or get home from her walk, and she was there, and Kiao didn't like that. But that's the only thing we know about this woman. That That's a pretty large leap to go from, you know, going to your house and you're not home to brutally murdering you. I, again, I, I can't rule out for certain can't rule out a female attacker. Uh, and one reason you can't rule it out is because we still don't have a clear motive here. Now, if there was rape, well, then clearly not female. Um, but since there wasn't any kind of sexual assault, there wasn't any robbery. You know you're looking at what we initially looked at and thought of as overkill, uh which would be something very personal with all the stab wounds uh, but in for me as, as as I've dug deeper into it and really analyzed each wound stab by stab cut by cut, I don't think that this was overkill at all; I just think it was a frenzied, unplanned, disorganized attack. I really am leaning right now that towards this was uh, very much a thrill kill. And then when we take into account what we have to do, you can't ignore the evidence that we have. So you have Jesse James Swindell that saw a woman that morning being abducted into a white car, white white Z28 Camaro uh, by several people. And then you have Judy Gonzalez who saw the same thing, several people dragging a woman into a white Camaro and then you have the undocumented immigrants that were telling Sylvia that they saw her being abducted into a car and then kicked out of the car and then brutalized as she crawled away. I mean, we can't—I I think we have to consider all the evidence and weigh its validity. But right now, I mean, that's, that's at least three, if not more. We don't know how many people witnessed this. People that witnessed an abduction by multiple men in a car. And so you you have to ignore you have to you have to explain away all those different witness statements in order for a single female attacker to fit. Yeah. Or any uh, single attacker to fit. Sure.
1: All right. And then you did mention the undocumented immigrants just now. And that got me thinking Uh, there was some listener feedback on the fan page about maybe some of these undocumented immigrants returning Kiyos keys to the mailbox. Did you want to talk about that?
0: Yeah, a few listeners have brought up something that I think is a really good point. I think it's a really good line of thought in the fact that maybe if these were undocumented immigrants that witnessed the attack, and it sounds like maybe at the beginning and the end of the attack, so probably multiple people, I would think, if that story is true, if it pans out and it's it's reliable. That they would be the ones that would be likely to put the keys back in the mailbox just as a good deed, you know let's think let's talk about for a minute. And we haven't really got into this too much, but let's say the car abduction theory is what happened, and that's accurate, okay, so if that's the case, where would we expect to find the keys? Probably somewhere where the attack started, right, so if we're looking at an abduction that happened on Grady Lane near Apache, way up there on the north end of the school. And I think so. If she if she indeed carried her keys in her right hand, as Kenna said she always did, and a couple of her friends said she always carried her keys, and this fight, this struggle starts, I would expect the keys to drop then, uh, which would also explain. You know, people wonder, well, how did the cops not find the keys? Well, the 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 police reports clearly state the only place they looked for evidence was up and down September. They didn't look over on. Grady or over by Apache. They never even looked over there. Mm-hmm. So they could have been just laying right on the sidewalk and they never would have known. But so if you have one of these undocumented immigrants that lives in that area, maybe right there in that corner, who in fact did witness the attack and saw the keys there, I would not think it out of the rumble possibilities for them to grab the keys and they're not going to talk to the authorities. They don't want to get involved, but just to go over and put the keys back in the mailbox. I think that's that's I think that's a perfectly at least reasonable hypothesis is how they got there.
1: All right, Bob, and then one last note before we wrap things up. You did just get an update on the Dallas PD open records
0: request today, didn't you? Yeah, I did, as a matter of fact. So this process has been a little odd, and I don't remember how much we got into it on the previous episode, but I filed the open records request with Dallas back this winter, February, I think, uh, with Dallas PD for all of the police files, the recordings, the notes, all that stuff, and they just blew me off for going on three months. And then finally, they sent an appeal to the Attorney General saying they didn't want to turn these documents over because they thought they were ineligible to be sent to me for one reason or another. Uh, And then I sent a response to the Attorney General pointing out that the Texas state law says they only have 10 days from the time of my request in order to make that appeal. So it's time barred, or at least in my opinion, it should be. Hadn't heard anything back from the Attorney General, which I would assume that would take, you know, because they have up to like 45 days to do that. But then I just got an email saying your open records request is ready, and this is how much it's going to be. Uh, send us a check, and we'll send you your stuff. So yeah. um, we should be getting that police file pretty soon. I'm a little curious as to how much is in there because, as you remember, in Smith County, uh, that open records request came to a total of almost $1,300. You know, a lot of them trying to charge by the hour or charged by the page. This request is like 34 bucks. Oh, wow. But then again, shipping for it is like $17, which would indicate, I would think, maybe a big package. So we just sent the check out today, and hopefully very soon we'll have that open records request and we can get a little better idea of what was going on within the police investigation. Awesome. Well, that's it for today. As always, I want to thank you all for all your engagement and support. Yeah, thank you everybody for staying engaged and again for giving us a couple of weeks off. In this Sunday's episode, that'll be coming out two days after this, we're going to be breaking down Sylvia's statement. And what I mean by that is we're going to be comparing the narrative that she heard with all of the case documents and information that we already have and see how it holds up against the evidence. So that'll be this Sunday. Truth and Justice is a production of New Beginning Incorporated. Our executive producer is Mike Bussing. All music for the show was created by PutThemInASong.com. We'll thank our transcription team, Desiree Dunn, Sarah Hoyt, and Sarah Mueller. And thank you to Chris Brinkley of SylviaConsultants.com for creating, managing, and maintaining our website. And also a big thank you to Amanda Meyer who designed and created the Friday follow-up logo. And as always, thank you to all of you for all of your engagement and support. Keep sending in your thoughts, theories, and ideas to theories at truthandjusticepod.com. Remember, you can always leave us voicemails at 269-224-2833. You can like our Facebook page or follow us on Twitter at TruthJusticePod. However you do it, stay engaged, stay in touch. But as for now, we're signing off. I'm Bob Ruff. And I'm Mike Bussing. And this has been Truth and Justice. weak sauce. Cut that line. Nix that. Let me try it again. So I know all of you really love hearing me and Mike talking about our underwear. But
1: It's an endless topic. You can...
0: just <laughs> <laughs> took a while to, while to pull the trigger on that I one,
1: Mike. I... God.
0: <laughs> I want I want you to say okay. Okay. this right. line. Right. Say, their soft, soft lock. All right. Here we go.
1: There we go. All right. Their soft lock adjustment system rests... <laughs> Man, are you kidding me? <laughs> Since when did we in America say the the term genitals in an ad for underwear? When does that
0: ever happen? It's in the copy, we're starting a day, buddy. And this is because I couldn't be witty and fun, right? Right, like yeah. this is my punishment. I have you, to say the word genitals on the air. You had a chance to be organic and say some. Yeah, things. you gave me a few shots there. You, you couldn't, did. Couldn't pull the trigger. All right, here we go. <laughs> Remember to insert there at the beginning of that. Damn it! All right. Their soft lock
1: adjustment system rests genitals up against... <laughs> their soft lock adjustment system rests... Uh, their soft lock adjustment system rests your private
0: parts up against... Up and away from private the... Private parts is so much worse than genitals. Okay, fine. They're... Give me that! No, no, I'll do it! I want you right now just to say the word genitals. Genitals. So you do have the ability to... And I've worn a lot of underwear, Mike. Yeah, and the worst part about wearing... Been wearing them for years. Right. <laughs>
1: you got nothing. No, I was getting ready to say something. You cut me off. Go ahead. Yeah, one of the worst things about buying conventional underwear is that the boxer briefs that I like to wear will ride up really high and then it can cause like, you know, your <laughs> b- out the bottom. That happens. Yeah, that does happen. <laughs>